Well, guys, good morning. It is good to be with you together. I know, uh, I think he mentioned I'm Matt. I am the worship pastor at Village, and um, so I get to come over here periodically and, uh, and be a part of the music ministry here, but I'm just thrilled to be able to open the word this morning. As he said, Craig, um, when I was talking to him about this message, he was really disappointed that um, he wasn't able to close out the sermon, but I, I absolutely agree with Brent. I'm sure he's praying for us. He said he would be, and uh, I believe for sure that he is. However, I do want to point out, we have met our Canadian quota. I just have to say, my in-laws have come down from Manitoba, and they're spending the holidays with us as well. So between them, my beautiful bride Amanda, and our two little boys who are dual citizens, we've, we've got our Canadians in our midst still. So even though Craig is here and is missed, we do still have some Canadians among us. So that's a blessing, and we're glad they're here too. But um, So I wanted to... Um, just start off this morning by asking you a question. Um, have you ever, in fact, before I ask the question, I'm just going to assume it's happened because you guys get to sit under Craig all the time. I was going to ask, have you ever sat under a teacher and just been completely amazed when they finished teaching? Where you were just blown away, you were astonished and amazed. And like I said, I was going to ask it, but then I know you sit under Craig week in and week out. So every Sunday, you're probably utterly astonished and amazed, right? Well, I've had um, opportunities going to different conferences and, and being at different churches. I've heard um, a variety of speakers, some that are incredibly talented, incredibly good, but there's one in particular that, that stands out to me. Um, when I was at Moody, I, uh, uh, which is in downtown Chicago, for those who don't know, uh, I heard about a, a speaker, a particular Christian speaker. His name's Richard Swinburne. In fact, you can put his picture up if you want, Kathy, and show them... Uh, yeah, this is the guy. Drove two hours to hear this guy speak, and yes, he's as exhilarating as he looks in the picture. Um, he's he's uh, a professor at Oxford, and he's highly intellectual, but I remember we went there, it was, he was doing two different lectures back-to-back at the UW campus, and so I drove up there, I had some buddies that were on campus there, and we all wanted to go hear this guy speak. He's a Christian philosopher and theologian, and um, the two topics he was teaching on, first one was the reasonableness of belief in the existence of God. And the second one was how the soul can exist outside of the body. So we get in there and we get into this big lecture hall. And as you can imagine, to hear those conversations, it was a very small room. A very small amount of people in the large room, I should say. So we're trickling in. We're super excited about it. There's a few other people that are all jazzed up about hearing this guy speak. And he gets up there and, you know, you can see that he, his voice legitimately is kind of like the... Uh, the old school criminal thing, like, yeah, so that was two hours of that kind of voice. And, um, but the content was incredibly um, impactful for us. What I noticed, there were a few things right away. We walk in, and I see he's got this tweed suit with the elbow pads. So I knew this guy cares more about, you know, what he's going to say than he does about how he dresses and how he looks, because that was a very intellectual-looking thing. And then, of course, you can kind of see a little bit, he's got a little bit of the Einstein hair kind of thing going on. So again, Another thing, I'm like, well, this guy's got to be smart. His hair, he looks disheveled. He doesn't care about the material things. It's all about the, uh, the immaterial, and that's what he's going to get into. And then he starts talking, and it was legitimately like the dude's vocabulary blew our minds. So it was, he has, oh, I didn't mention, he's a professor at Oxford, but he's also British. And it feels like when you hear a British person speak, there's just like this eloquence. And there was something about how he was speaking that just, even though it was totally monotone and totally like, it was as if he was reading off a piece of paper. But that accent, 
made it just draw us in and made us feel like, man, this guy's brilliant. So he starts talking and literally two hours of lectures on those things. And, and by the time he finished, me and my buddies, we were just like literally astounded. We walked out of that room using our physical bodies, even though he just talked about how we could exist without our physical bodies. So we're walking physically thinking, we don't need our bodies. We can exist outside. This is crazy. So we're, you know, we're a bunch of college students thinking, this is the coolest thing we just learned. None of us could have defended that position after the fact. But in that moment, we were all like, hey, that was amazing. So then we walked back and changed and went and played racquetball. <laughs> but that being said, Richard Swinburne, he's considered an authority in Christian philosophy. And so you have um, different people in our society that are considered authorities. And so for me, it was like driving two hours to hear this Christian philosopher who's an authority on these different, um, you know, basically Christian existentialism, on these different philosophical positions. I was like, that's worth it. I'm on board. And we were astounded, legitimately astounded by what the guy brought to the table. And so now we look at this text. We look at what happened after the Sermon on the Mount. For those who have been with us this fall, you've seen us walk through verse by verse what our Lord was teaching in his most famous sermon ever given. And there were incredibly insightful things. Obviously, he's Jesus. He's the Son of God, so he had some important things to say. Um, but at the end of it, this is what the people's reaction is. So let's go to the text in Matthew 7. Uh, it says, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. So it's, it's interesting to me because, as I mentioned, Jesus says some incredibly impactful things. But what astounded them wasn't specifically what he said. What astounded them was how he said it. Because it says he was teaching them as one who had authority. So it wasn't just the teaching, it was the teacher that astounded the people. It was Jesus himself that was compelling. Not to say that what he said wasn't important. It absolutely was. And in what he said, he revealed his authority. But it wasn't simply what he said that astounded the people. It was what he said and who he was, who he revealed himself to be throughout that message. His innate authority was on display in every single thing that he taught in that passage. So for us to understand their reaction, to understand what was happening, we need to look at the context. So at this point in history, the Israelites had had 400 years of silence. There was no prophetic word given. There were no prophecies between Malachi and then you get to the book of Matthew. There's a 400-year gap in there. There were historical documents, and, and there was a, the narrative of the people was still recorded, um, but that was not divinely inspired from God. There was no direct revelation. And so what the people were used to is the teachings of their scribes. So you see something they're setting apart here. There's a difference between Jesus, who teaches with authority, and not as their scribes. So their scribes taught in a very different manner. The scribes taught people by quoting other authorities. The scribes were experts in the other people's interpretations of the law. And what this did, it did two things for the scribes. It gave them a level of perceived intelligence because if they're saying, well, I read this guy, and I read that guy, and this guy says this, and this guy says that, it starts to, they started to build their own case and to puff themselves up by saying, hey, this guy interpreted that in this way. So they were trying to impress the people with that. But not only were they trying to impress the people to show how educated they were, but it also built their case with some authority behind it. But it was not their own authority. 
It was previous people who had come before and interpreted the law for them, and then they would point to this person's interpretation of this law and that person's interpretation. But never would the scribes have given any kind of prophetic word. They wouldn't have interpreted anything on their own authority. It was only the authority of others that they rested upon. So there's the difference here. Jesus taught them as one who had authority. And so it's a very different thing. So we have to then consider what is authority? What does that mean? So in our culture today, we generally recognize authority in two different ways. We either recognize it positionally by the position that someone holds. So anyone in here who's a parent understands firsthand, hey, you're in a position of authority as a parent over your children. You are an authority figure over them. We have authority positions as far as our public officers, our our public officials, including police officers. They're in authority over us. Uh, We have our governing officials that we've elected, our supervisors in work, all these things. These are, we understand those positions cause people to have authority based on the position that they hold. Now, one thing to clarify, just because you have the position of authority doesn't mean that people will automatically submit to the authority that your position gives you. For instance, you police, as I mentioned, are, are authority figures. They uphold the law. Does that mean that we don't have the ability to break the law and disregard their authority? Please say no. We can still do that, but when we do it, we're going to have consequences, right? So we might speed. We, we can. We have the physical ability to drive our car 100 miles an hour in a school zone, but there's going to be a consequence for that. You know, so, so just because someone's in a position of authority doesn't mean that we automatically are going to respect their authority or respect the position that they're in. Again, anyone with kids, we can attest. We've had kids, uh, I mean, ours are two and four, and our four-year-old has been defiant from time to time, if you can believe it. Must get it from his mother, I don't know, but no, I'm kidding. That's definitely not from Amanda. But, um, so we have that, we have the positions. And then the other way that we would recognize authority in people is in the perception. This is like Richard Swinburne when I mentioned he's considered to be one of the world's greatest authorities in the Christian philosophical realm. So you have these other people that um, it's based on how they're perceived by others. They may not have a specific position that gives them authority, but our perception of them is they know what they're talking about. Usually the perception is rooted in either they have a vast knowledge of something, they're experts on a specific subject or topic, or uh, an advanced amount of skill in something. So you could look at athletes as the authority on, you know, uh, you could look at MJ as the authority on basketball. Not LeBron, MJ, all right? I'm just going to say it, no. But uh, in reality, so you look at those kind of things, highly skilled or highly um, uh, knowledgeable people, and we will view them as authoritative because they're considered authorities. But neither of these things quite grasp completely what Jesus is. In fact, we see that Jesus the authority that's on display in him is far greater than either of those categories. It goes beyond just the position and the perception, although those are both there as well, as we will see. So in order for us to also understand this, not only do we need to look at the historical context where we see that the scribes for 400 years taught law, 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 no new revelation from the Lord, but we also need to look at the context in what Jesus said. So the text says, When he finished these sayings, when Jesus finished these sayings, well then what are these sayings that he finished? What are these sayings that people found so compelling? Well, let's jump back then to Matthew 7, 24 through 27. Everyone then who hears 
these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a foolish man and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. So that's the passage that came just before Matthew writes about the response of the people. So we have these sayings, and then there he says, everyone who hears these words of mine, both times in there, you have these words of mine who does it, these words of mine who don't do it. So these words of mine are everything that he just taught throughout the Sermon on the Mount. So he's saying, everyone who's heard these words that I've just spoken of throughout this entire sermon, as I mentioned, that we in this room have been looking at for the last, I'd say, four months, maybe five months, Everyone who does these words of mine will be like someone who builds their house on a rock. So these sayings, which astonish them, are those sayings, the sayings, everything that he taught just then and there. But again, as I mentioned, it's not only what he said that displayed his authority, but it's also how he said it. So here's the main point of our sermon this morning. In fact, there's only one point. It's in your notes as well. Jesus has authority. Listen up. And that's not just directed to you, that's directed to me too. Jesus has authority. We need to listen up to what he says. So let's look back then at a couple of passages here. In Matthew 5.11, we see, I just want to, before I go into that, let me just say, when we look back on the Sermon on the Mount, we will see over and over again where Jesus reveals himself, where he reveals his authority in what he says and in how he says it. So let's look here, Matthew 5, 11, 1 through 12. This is the first place where it's very clear. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. That word right there, on my account. Jesus is claiming, if you're persecuted on my behalf, on my account, for me, well, well who is this guy, this random guy who hasn't, been trained under the Pharisees and under the scribes. He hasn't had any of that schooling, any of that training. But this random guy is saying, if you're persecuted on my account, you'll be blessed. In fact, your reward will be great in heaven. How can this guy make these claims about rewards in heaven if he's just a, just a regular guy, just a Joe Schmo? So he's starting to lay the groundwork just in this passage, towards, uh, right after the Beatitudes, towards the, top of this, um, towards the top of Matthew 5, towards the top of this sermon. Starting to lay the groundwork. So then let's look at the next couple of passages. In, in Matthew 5.18, he says, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And then Matthew 5.20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So there he is again, making claims about eternal things. And not only is he making these claims, But look at the authority that he's relying upon. It's his own. For truly I say to you, for I tell you, he's making these claims, not saying Joe Schmo's interpretation says this will happen, or in this passage of scripture it says this. He's saying, I'm telling you this. So he's claiming this authority in these passages. I tell you, truly I say to you, it's his authority that he's banking this upon. It's not the authority of these previous people who have come before him and interpreted things. Now, if those three passages aren't enough, 
let's just, I'm not going to read all these passages, but you can go ahead and go to the next slide, Kathy. And uh, there's a couple of phrases that he says here. You have heard it said, but I say to you, all of those references, there's six different times in that very next passage of scripture where he says, you have heard it said, da, 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 da. But I say to you, da, 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 da. So you have all these different ones, loving your enemies, you know, hating your enemies versus loving your enemies. Um, do not commit adultery. It's, it's a sin of the heart, not of the flesh. Um, it, all these different things that he goes into. You have heard it said this way, but I'm telling you this. So he's definitely laying a, gra- a groundwork and claiming a level of authority in these passages. Now the very next one as well, there's four times where he utters this phrase. We can go to the next slide, Kathy. Truly I say to you. Now he did say that already in uh, Matthew 5.18. But then there's uh, four additional times in Matthew 6 where he's talking about having your righteousness not on display for the people to see, but practicing your righteousness for the Lord alone. And he says, he's talk- in all those he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. He's talking about the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees who flaunt their righteousness before others so that they will be praised by men instead of worrying about a true righteousness in their heart, which is where God is looking. So he says, truly I say to you, and he's making claims about their rewards. Again, speaking of the eternal and the temporal at the same time. He's talking about this life and the implications for the life that is to come and that will be everlasting. So he's making these claims, again, on his authority. How many times does he say, I say to you? How many times does he say, I tell you? It's over and over again in this passage. And then if, if that's not enough, I'm just going to do this one. I think this is kind of the clincher. You go to Matthew 7. Uh, and, and 24, as I, I read it before, these words of mine, that's true as well. But let's go one more slide ahead. In 7, 21 through 23. Now these red letters, I guess technically it's all red letters based on it's all Jesus saying these things. But I, I accented these red letters because each of these show his authority. So let's just read through this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So right there, he's already saying people are going to come to him calling him Lord, calling him Master. That's what that word Lord means. Not everyone who comes to me saying, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now if you remember when we looked back, when we did the, uh, the portion of this sermon on uh, the Lord's Prayer, we know how that starts. Our Father who art in heaven, right? But now Jesus is claiming an exclusivity here. He's saying, my Father who is in heaven. He's, he's not just saying that flippantly. It's not an accidental word choice. He's making it clear he is God's Son. And we see that in other passages as well, but in this one in particular, he's saying, the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So there it is again. There's an authority that he's claiming, a direct connection to his Father. On that day, many will say to me again, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name. Three times, things that people are doing in the name of Jesus, in his name. They're they're pleading their own cases before him, as he says there. Oh, we can, we can go back to that passage still because um, we're not quite done just yet. In your name, in your name, in your name. Three times he says that. And, and that's what he's saying. People are doing these mighty works in his name, but even that isn't enough. He says, then, I, then will I declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. So in this passage, Jesus reveals himself, as I mentioned, as the Lord or the master. People will come to him, master, Lord, Lord. 
trying to enter the kingdom of heaven. He also, as I said, reveals himself as God's son and, and my father who is in heaven. And ultimately, he reveals himself as the eternal judge who will stand over everyone when everyone faces him at the end of this life. So he says, all these people stand before him and I will declare. He's the one who's declaring it on his authority. It's not on the authority of someone else. It's the authority of Jesus that he's making these claims because he has the authority. That's why that's the case. And so we can see in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus isn't merely telling us how to live. He's revealing who he is in what he's saying and in how he's saying it. I think that's a key point for us to understand, that it's not simply, these are good pieces of advice for us to govern our lives by. That's true, they are. But it's more than that. Jesus is revealing who he is and the authority that he has been given in order to do this. So, as we can see, Jesus teaches with this astonishing authority throughout this sermon. But here's what's interesting. Throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, he goes to painstaking efforts to not only show that Jesus teaches with authority and speaks about his authority, but then he goes and lives out his life in that authority. So let's go ahead and and look at um, Matthew 8, verse 1 through 3. That's the very next passage of Scripture as well. Um, When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. So here we have Jesus showing his authority. The crowds are astonished at the authority that they've seen. And then the very next thing he does goes down from the mountain. The crowds are following him. So there are crowds of people that would have witnessed this happening. This leper asks him to cleanse him. And immediately he cleanses this leper. So there he's showing his authority in that context. Prior to this point, prior to the Sermon on the Mount, there's no, there are no recordings of Jesus performing any miracles in the book of Matthew. And so we see that, um, that this is a very specific thing. Jesus taught with authority, now he's going to live in that authority. On the next slide, we're going to show you there are multiple passages. Again, I'm not going to read them all, but I would encourage you, if, if, I mean, if you want to go home, read through Matthew 8, read through, well, read through the entire rest of the book, But each of these passages shows his authority over creation. First, he heals the leper. Then he heals the paralyzed servant. Then he heals many sick and demon-possessed. It says that many came to him and all who came to him were healed. He healed so many people in that moment. Then in 8, 24 to 27, he's in the boat with the disciples. The storm comes. He calms the storm. And then the disciples marvel, saying, Who is this man that even the wind and the waves obey him? Showing his authority over creation there. And then at the end of chapter 8, He heals two demon-possessed men. All of that immediately coming out of this passage. So again, he teaches with authority. He talks about his authority in his teaching, showing that he has that rightful place. And then he goes and proves the authority that he just claimed to have in the sermon. So that's where it starts, authority over creation. And then the very next chapter, like I said, the rest of the book of Matthew is full of these examples. In Matthew 9, um, 38 through 10, 1, Uh, Sorry, in Matthew 9, 2, rather. He shows that he has the authority to forgive sins. It says, uh, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. They brought this paralytic to him to be physically healed, and he did one better. In fact, he did an eternally better thing. He said, Your sins are forgiven. He didn't just say, 
your legs are healed, forgave his sins. Well, between the next few verses, the scribes, there were a number of scribes that accused him of being a blasphemer because he claims to have the authority to forgive sins. And again, the scribes, they don't rely on anyone else's authority. They claim, uh, they, they wouldn't accept his authority. They would only accept authority of people who came before them. So they would say, he's a blasphemer. They accuse him of that. And then in 9.6, he says, but that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed and go home. So we see he had the authority over creation. Now he's showing the authority to forgive sins. And then in 9.38 through 10.1, we see uh, it says, uh, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. And then this is chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and affliction. So now he's gone from not only displaying his own authority over creation, his own authority to forgive sins, but now he has the authority to give his authority away, his authority away to other people. He gave his authority out to the disciples. And it doesn't say anything about him giving them, um, giving them just a portion of his authority. They had that level of authority to carry out those same things that Jesus had. And it's his to give away. He has that authority to do that. Then the very last thing that I think would be beneficial to look at is that all authority has been given to him. And that's what we see in one of the most uh, famous passages uh, for believers that we see in Scripture in Matthew 28, which we know as the Great Commission, right? And it says, And Jesus came to them, uh, came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and of the Holy Spirit. So now we see not only that he has authority in these specific realms, but as if it wasn't clear enough, throughout the entire book of Matthew, he's building this case, right? He's building this case to reveal that Jesus is the authority. He is the authoritative Son of God. God incarnate. God in flesh among us. And that's what we see. So now, all authority in heaven and on earth, all authority, period, in, in all of creation, everything, has been given to him. And because he has that authority, then he commissions people. And so we see this pattern in the book of Matthew. First, we see that Jesus tells us who he is. And as I mentioned, that's all throughout the Sermon on the Mount. Over and over again, all those times where he says, truly I say to you, you have heard, but I tell you. These are all cases in which he's building himself up to be exactly who he is, representing himself accurately as the one with the authority in all those situations. Then, after he tells us who he is, he goes on from there and shows us who he is. He shows us that he is the Son of God. He shows us that he has the authority by driving out demons, by healing the sick, healing the lame, raising the dead. He does all these things to demonstrate the authority that he has. And then finally, Jesus commissions us to go and make disciples with his authority. And that should be so encouraging to you guys. It's such an encouragement to me to know that Jesus doesn't just send us out with nothing. He sends us out, as we see in, in the book of Matthew as well, with his helper, with the Holy Spirit. But he sends us out with his authority. 
to go and make disciples of all nations. We're not just sent out there into this world on our own. Okay, go fend for yourselves. I did my part. I died on the cross. I rose from the dead. Now you go do your part. No. He calls us to do our part, but our part is in his power, is in his strength. He's given that to us so that we can walk in his ways and so that we can display his authority on this world as well. Not for our glory, not to make much of ourselves, but to make much of Jesus, to bring glory to him. So that's what happens there with that great commission. He sends us out with that authority. So what? What does this mean for all of us? I mean, after this entire sermon series, ultimately we, just like the crowds in this passage, we have a response that we need to give as well. We can choose, as I mentioned before, like we can do with authority figures, we can choose to try and disregard that authority. We can try to ignore it. We can try to say, well, the evidence, it's, it's kind of compelling, but not enough. I'm just going to do my own thing, Jesus. Maybe down the road, maybe I'll find you to be more compelling, or maybe I'll need you more. We can choose to walk that path, but just as I mentioned, if you speed in a school zone, there's consequences. Well, this is eternally more risky because the eternal risk here is eternal life versus eternal condemnation. We either have life in Jesus or we stand condemned before a holy God. There's no in between there. So, like I said, we could choose to ignore that. We could choose, as the text tells us, that the people were astonished, but it doesn't tell us anything beyond that. We don't know if their astonishment was just kind of like ours was with, with Richard Swinburne, where it was like, man, that guy is brilliant. Woo! And then we walked away and played racquetball. You know, it wasn't a life-changing thing in that moment. I mean, it was, hey, that was impressive. This guy's intelligent. I didn't understand half the words he said, but man, somehow I can exist. You know, hey, we were astonished with the guy, but we weren't changed by the guy. We weren't, we didn't allow that to have anything. And now he's not divine. We shouldn't have had that have anything. He didn't have any authority other than that which was given to him in, from the Lord. But Jesus had all authority. So Jesus, when these crowds were astonished by him, we don't know whether that astonishment led them to then place their trust in him. We see, at least for this, this uh, uh, paralytic um, right there, that, that there was some level of that. There was a level of at least trust in there. And later on, we see the other paralytic who, who receives uh, the forgiveness of his sins. So we do see evidence of that, but we don't know. So then the, the question comes to you and to me. What are we going to do with this Jesus? This Jesus who clearly displays his authority throughout this entire passage. How are we going to respond? Are we going to allow our astonishment and our amazement at his authority to lead us to trust in him, to choose to walk in him, submit to his authority, and then walk in that? Or are we going to try and ignore it and see how that works out for us? I can tell you, I've had seasons in my life where I've tried to ignore the authority of Jesus and his hand is heavy upon you during those times. And if you get to a place where it's no longer heavy upon you, it's a scary place. But when it is heavy upon you, you want to turn and trust in him. Turn and repent. Turn and acknowledge that Jesus not only taught with authority, he demonstrated the authority from the Father and now he's calling us as his followers to go with his authority and impact this world for his glory. So that's where we're at here. That's where we're at. Are we going to be moved from astonishment to a place of worship, adoration, and praise and submit to him 
and obey Him, obey His commands, and then choose to walk in His power and under His authority? Or will we just allow these words to fall on deaf ears and walk away unchanged by what we've encountered throughout this entire sermon that Jesus has given to us? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you that not only did you give us your word, which shows us Jesus, but you also gave us your Holy Spirit. And Lord, I pray for each one of our hearts that we would be drawn to you through your word, that we would not look at you as just a brilliant teacher and look at these as good guides to live our lives by, but Lord, that we would look at these as they are, the words of God himself. And we should heed those things. We need to heed your words, heed your advice. And ultimately, Lord, we need to submit to you. And so we pray, Lord, that you would turn our hearts to you, that you would use the sermons that we've seen, this sermon in particular, the Sermon on the Mount, to transform our hearts, Lord, that your spirit would do a work in each one of us to draw us closer to you, to make us more like you as we look not only to this day, but to the day after and so on and so forth. Day by day, Lord, we want to draw closer to you and we pray that we would see you for who you actually are as you've revealed yourself in your word and then, Lord, let us choose to follow after you. We love you, Jesus, and pray all this in your name. Amen.